1: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites.
0: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today.
2: I, I think, you know, a, a lot of people think like, oh, well, you know, the, the marketing and, and that sort of end of it can be a real damper on creativity because you have to change you know your ideas or you have to make it fit you know something that a demographic will be interested in and and it it kind of gives me like a creative place to start from
0: welcome to the draw your dice podcast the show that calls on the champions and new contenders of the tabletop rpg arena my name is jeremy gage and i am learning about tabletop game design and publishing you are a budding game designer or a veteran looking for fresh musings. Stay tuned as we learn about the inspirations, processes, and philosophies of professionals in the industry. Hello everyone to this episode of the Draw Your Dice podcast. My name is Jeremy as you heard in the intro before, but There's no reason not to say it twice so that you remember. Today's guest I bring to the table is another fellow Brain Trusty Scientist member. They are the co-host of the What the Folklore podcast, where they dissect classical fairy tales and stories and oral legends. I would like, like to welcome to the show Gordy Murphy. Thank you.
2: I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, of course. Gordy, as... Her, the custom of this show, would you please give a brief introduction for those who may not be aware of who you are or what you stand for as you present yourself to the world, please? Thank you.
2: Yeah. So I have been working in politics for the last couple of years as sort of the, the the day job, progressive politics for a number of campaigns, and then started writing tabletop role-playing games about two years ago. If if you know anything that I have written, it will probably be Apotheosis, which was in the giant BLM bundle. I see a lot of you downloading it, whether you mean to or not. I, I know that you have. Or a more recently, uh, a game called Mainframe. Amazing. That's awesome that I have sort of a...
0: another political activist in, in the show. We had We, I... I'm a one-man crew. I had Paulino Caputo on here uh, a couple weeks ago. And they are also very much into touching base with communities and and being on the activist side of, of their daily life or day life. So really, really happy to have you on here and see if any of that brings influence into the games you write. Yeah, Gordy, what is sort of... I like to showcase the transitionary steps to people getting into game design because we all have different walks of life and touch bases with it. What was sort of your first role playing game that you played that you really enjoyed? And then what was sort of the first one that kind of pushed you into wanting to to create something in in game design?
2: Yeah, I think I think these are going to be very boilerplate answers. I the, the first one was Dungeons and Dragons third edition I remember my middle school did a thing called field day is that is that like a well-known thing for me yes yeah Yeah. yeah, yeah. okay so so if you don't know it's they set up like a bunch of activities and stuff outside and you just kind of go outside and do stuff and and in seventh grade like (laughs) 10 of my friends and I chose to spend that day learning how to play D&D and and did like one simple combat for about four hours because none of us knew what we were doing. And then I, I think the, the quiet year was kind of the one that sort of opened up a, a very different side because I, I, I think what I liked about Dungeons & Dragons was sort of getting invested in the setting and the world building and that's that is kind of a a big thing for me sort of across all media and i'm sure a lot of you know the quiet year but it is very much sort of about building a setting and then the the first game that i i wrote was for the folklore jam two years ago and that was apotheosis and you know we're it, it was sort of through hosting this podcast about like Folklore and fairy tales. I was like, oh, this seems relevant. And I I had been trying to like learning some coding and making like some some video games in my spare time, and and wrote a tabletop RPG. I was like, this is great. I don't have to code anything. Like, there's there's no debugging. I can just tell people what to do, and then they do it. And it was it was really fun. And so I kind of just kept doing it after that.
0: Amazing. I love that, especially on like the first touch point being the folklore jam. Did was it? What came first, the What the F- uh, Folklore podcast or the Folklore jam that inspired one or the other?
2: The the podcast has been going since 2015, I think, oh. Com- coming up on the six-year anniversary of that. <gasps> Congratulations. Um, thank you. It's there's, there's a lot of them, and I don't remember one of them. At, at this stage, you kind of record something, and then it's just gone <laughs> as soon as you say it. I just dump it immediately. I was always kind of interested in folklore and mythology. My my aunt bought me a board game called By Jove when I was like three or four. I I don't mm-hmm. know if anybody else remembers this or played it, but it's, it's kind of about Greek mythology, and that sort of kicked off, a, so far, a lifelong interest in, in that. And I lived in Iceland for a little bit, studying Norse mythology and researching that. And yeah, so it, it all kind of sort of a, a confluence of interest and was like oh folklore jam games tabletop games I'd been listening to like the Adventure Zone and and Friends at the Table and was like oh this is great I'm gonna try this.
0: I love that I love that so much I have I mean my you know my classical the classical standpoints of myth for me have always been Norse and Greek mythology but lately I've been really getting into African mythology and folklore and stuff like that yeah. from an ancestry.com relation thing, found out that I have like Congo African heritage somewhere within my DNA. So it's been very interesting to learn about learn about those tales. I just think there's a lot of interesting uh, delineations people can make from myth. And no offense to to your particular interests, just a lot of that happens to be Greek and Norse-based, mm-hmm. Euro-based to some effect. And I would love to start seeing more African or Northern Siberian folklore or anything of that nature start to weave its way into, I guess, the American eye as far as my vacuum is concerned, right?
2: Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think, I mean, kind of with lots of media, it, it tends to be very, like, sort of Western European or american focus and yeah totally totally agree there's like really really fascinating stuff everywhere like me me being a a white man i i don't know that i am the person to to bridge that gap i i feel like i should stay in my lane but i would yeah i would would love to see that and i think at least like fantasy is going in that direction like fantasy books Mm. which is very cool to see i i
0: totally agree with all that i love it well Let's let's dive into the meat of the show. Let's talk about some games, yeah? Yeah. So the first one we'll kind of touch base with is Mainframe. So Gordy, would you just give a brief introduction of what
2: Mainframe is about for people who may not have read it or played it? Sure. Mainframe is a tunnel goons cyberpunk hack about sort of playing as anti-corporate AI hunters in a very weird, surreal cyberspace. It It's kind of started... As an idea for a campaign that I would have run in, like a game like The Sprawl, maybe, and and sort of kept thinking about it, and it just sort of turned into its its own thing. But it is kind of a, a very surreal, very trippy kind of a setting, very influenced and inspired by like the weird deep dream art that kept coming out that AIs were generating, like like on the on the you know kind of lighter side. Uh, I think there was an image that went around that like this AI was having trouble distinguishing between like dogs and fried chicken and but you get like you get very like weird interesting kind of patterns and and things like that and so it kind of morphed into like this is like this is kind of the visual aesthetic that I'm going for and I kind of just leaned into like I'm just going to make this like its own game.
0: Yeah, the art direction and layout for it is beautiful. I I had very much, like, Matrix vibes coming from it. I don't know if that fits within the thematics that you sort of uh, discussed, but through my reading, I get this sort of, like, within the machine... Sort of effect, and that's my main touch point. I am not super familiar with very many cyberpunk tropes. I've only mm-hmm. recently been like touching base with them as I explore the solar punk variation for my own personal writings. Yeah, but I, I loved going through it and sort of reliving the early 2000s <laughs> Jeremy as I thought about <laughs> being Morpheus
2: at some point. Yeah, there, there's probably some some matrix in in there. I mean, yeah, that wasn't like a conscious touchstone but it I think it fits I find the for how system the sort of
0: dice model resolution mechanics of the game is the 2d6 system I think you do some really interesting variations that one of them specifically I'd love to touch on is the glitch mechanic and how it kind of stirs the pot on sort of a sort of a pretty binary resolution system for the most part but I love this Concept of if it doesn't match a particular stat, then something extraordinary happens because of that. Did you do that too? sort of rid get rid of that binary like was the binary just not feeling it for you and you needed to add one more thing was sort of the concept behind the glitch mechanic
2: yeah kind of and just for for context i guess for for (laughs) listeners (laughs) the the mechanic is is basically like you'll roll your your 2d6 and if the the two different dice show values that are larger than than a certain stat then some kind of glitch in cyberspace called mainframe occurs and and as glitches build up things kind of get weirder and weirder yeah it it was it was kind of trying to shake like just a total binary like you succeed or you don't and that went through a couple iterations the original was was like if one die is higher than the other then something from like the physical world intrudes and it just like in playtesting it felt very clunky and just kind of wasn't doing it and and it the design shifted from being like Everybody has, like, is a physical character, but is sort of in this, like, cyberspace is kind of just like this sort of, what do you call it? Not, like, total virtual reality, but, like, kind of like the Google Glass. Augmented? Thing. Yeah, yeah, like like an augmented reality thing. And then, and then it shifted from that to, like, you just, you don't have a body. You're all, you're all your consciousness is just uploaded into cyberspace and you look like whatever you want. But yeah, it it was it was that and and I think like if I if I have a brand for for tabletop games, if I had to like fix one thing that kind of really, really interests me as a as a theme, I think it is change over time. And and so that was also kind of that interest coming in because as as glitches build up like the the server that you're in which is kind of like equivalent to sort of a neighborhood in a city or a district of a city will degrade it's kind of up to the gm to determine like what what that looks like but it could be like things start falling apart or the laws of physics get really weird like whatever whatever you want to do but yeah i think i think it is that sort of interest to to sort of look at like, well what what happens to a place over time and how does it change? And also just kind of give like it's just like another like very open kind of pressure that the GM can can use to put players in danger or just kinda of push up the tension or whatever they feel like they need.
0: Yeah, the the glitch slash corruption mechanic was very interesting to me and to speak on the the brand of sort of the like legacy slash lineage progression of a place or a character or something that i think that does that brand speaks through both <laughs> of these games especially when, when we get to talk about apotheosis oh, I, I i'm a big fan of like narrative structure and things like that so mm-hmm. I, I can't wait to to dive into that stuff so I know that there are. This started out as an adventure for something similar to the sprawl, mm-hmm. and I guess my question is that there, you know, there are major titles like Shadowrun and stuff out there. I always, I haven't had anyone on the show that really has delved into a sort of fantasy game. Like, I guess what I'm, what I'm alluding to, is that there are a lot of cyber. Punk style games out here in the world, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of games. Period. But what did you feel that they were lacking? That you sort of that this game sort of does for you. I'm not saying like solves because you know I don't want anyone to solve a genre. Yeah. But yeah, what what was that? Why this game against all the other sort of cyberpunk facilitators
2: out there? I don't know. I, I think I asked the, the question in in the Brain Trust a while back like like at what point do you does an idea go from like this is a cool idea to a campaign like for a campaign to, like this just deserves to be its own game. And I think like I am I am by no means like an expert of all the like cyberpunk games out there. There may very well be one that that would handle all of this perfectly and i just don't know about it but i i don't know i, I think i think again it is kind of the setting for me that i was really interested and in. i was like okay like i'm kind of invested in like this this setting and sort of this vibe of of kind of like neural nets that that have taken in a lot of data about human behavior and have simulated it in cyberspace but and kind of the the conceit of the game is that like you're you're all in cyberspace and it is it is entirely run by AI AI sort of corporate controlled AI and and you are trying to like hunt down and and capture destroy these corporate AI that are kind of making cyberspace a a less free place to be. Yeah, and and so so while you're sort of running around in in cyberspace, the idea is that it is it is sort of created and maintained by like hundreds and thousands of different ai none of them are necessarily coordinated i I think in the rules that the metaphor is like imagine that you like mixed up the pieces to a hundred different jigsaw puzzles and a bunch of people were trying to like assemble an image all at once so it's just like very weird and and i was interested enough in like kind of that setting to just sort of write something uh, about it and i i don't know the the tunnel goons kind of framework just worked just worked really well and it's it's a great foundation for for lots and lots of things and then i played a yokai hunter society which is another great mm. tunnel goons hack kind of about sort of japanese horror and monsters and hunting down monsters and it sort of bridged the gap and i realized like oh yeah this just sort of fits
0: i love that and i love that it's in a setting where i think the reason why i connected the matrix to it is that it's sort of a world where or setting or even space where anything can happen you can you imagine it it's there it doesn't have i really don't think that it has any genre limitation like even though it has sort of like a uh cyberpunk baggage to it mm-hmm. it doesn't you could do dragons could show up you could be in a forest you could be wherever especially with uh, the other thing that really i loved was the loca- uh server building tables that you have and also the design of them i just like the sort of hex crawl maybe not intentional but intentional effect that they have mm-hmm. in, in the book but i love that it can be you can shift those tables and put really any words in there and it yeah. becomes a completely different has a different weight to it but doesn't change anything about the game which is cool which I think is is it's like an agnostic game for any setting
2: which is really cool yeah I I definitely like doing that because again like a big part of playing these games for me is kind of imagining where we are and getting investing getting invested in in the setting and so I don't want to like take that away from from other players and so the the server creation tools kind of ask that you pick kind of like an an aesthetic the idea is basically that like these ai sort of understand like human structures and societies but but render them modeled on other kinds of things and so you might end up with like this is a a residential area that is very beehive like and mm. it's and the AI that built it kind of pull in weird designs from 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 other things I think one of the one of the like example corporate servers is like an, an ant hill where the tunnels kind of trace out these occult symbols but yeah like go go nuts it's all it's all virtual make it look like whatever you want if you want it to be fantasy then go for it that is that is your prerogative
0: yeah i think it's a game that has a lot of really cool levers and buttons for really anyone at the table to use like it doesn't just have to be the gm it can be any of the players as well which is which is really fascinating i mean i think you you did a really good job of emul- emulating those effects through the sort of voice of the game for sure Friends. So, Gordy in the tabletop sphere, maybe something that is adjacent to it. What sort of trends are you seeing that you love are sort of peering their heads out of the noise? You know, what what is something that's sort of like peaking on your radar all the time that you'd love to examine more of? Or are there any trends within you that you would like to speak into the universe for people who are thinking about game design out there?
2: Trends within me. <laughs> yeah, I, I again, I am like definitely not an expert on... on this aspect of it. And, and so some of these are maybe things that other people have known about for a while, but I think like, as I have kind of read more and learned more, you know, I, I started sort of thinking about things in sort of like, you know, the big like rules systems that you will find. And, and I think it's like, it's an easy thing to kind of latch onto is like, okay, there's a lot of, there's a lot of powered by the apocalypse, games out there that's like a thing i can wrap my head around and all these kind of fall into that umbrella and then there's like blades in the dark is another big one and i i feel like i have been finding a lot more things that kind of aren't like hacks of any one thing but kind of are remixing lots of different pieces of tech from different games in in really interesting ways i i will shout out a a couple of games aaron king's upcoming patchwork world does some really really cool things with like the powered by the apocalypse system and kind of how that is how that is interpreted that has a kickstarter coming up for zine quest you should definitely look at that and then adam bell's no stone unturned is is another very cool game that like kind of takes a, a lot of different pieces of things that are really interesting and kind of builds builds uh, a, a very cool game and a cool like game loop out of it the other thing that i i'm really interested in i don't know if this is a trend i would like it to be if it's not is is kind of like bridging what I don't know I don't know if like is if session zero games is is I, I don't want to say that as like a like at all a, a dismissive term because I, I love those. Like games that are just kind of pure world building and like you come up with a setting and then that's great. You can use it for other stuff or you can just enjoy making a cool place. But I, I feel like I've seen a, a couple of things that kind of bridge the gap between like I am I am doing some world building and then also I have like a character or something who's doing stuff in that in that world and, and no stone unturned does that. And I, I feel like I've seen like a couple of instances of this, and I I keep thinking about it and I keep trying to write something that that does that. But yeah, I think like like I've written a, a number of kind of just world building games, which again I love, but then I, I really want to be able to do something with that without kind of getting people back together and teaching them a different game and then going back and saying like okay remember we did all this stuff and we built this cool place now let's learn a different game and make new characters and kind of do stuff in it and that like that's fine but yeah really really interested in kind of games where you kind of get to to do that as you go like you have characters and you get to uncover stuff and sort of decide what it means and kind of build the world as you move around in it so it's it's at least a, a new ish thing to me and I would like to see a lot more of it
0: yeah I just I mean my I've only had limited experience with what you kind of coined as session zero games I, have, I also call them like toolkit games mm-hmm. but I just recently played Grasping Nettles with Adam Bell over on the Plus One XP yeah. podcast per the recording of this video or video audio. Yeah. <laughs> Where Al- am I? Also coming to Kickstarter very soon and worth worth following. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It was a blast, but I totally understand what you're saying about not having sort of a... Uh, vessel or housed character to sort of drive within that world, right? You never get beyond the sort of top-down view of a game like that, at least at, at current design iteration. Mm-hmm. And I also love how you touched on this emergence of patchwork games. I know that we had Max V on here a while back, and Max's whole principle of game design rests within the piecemeal patchwork uh, biome of taking like ooh that tech's really cool and that tech's really cool and let's smash them together cool ooh here's a third one and sort of like building a what did you call that cheese board that's not a good that's not a good analogy for that I'll think of it in a minute but
2: smorgasbord
0: smorgasbord yeah a yeah. variety pack if you will yes. of game variety pack games is that what we call them people let me know that's a good term <laughs> for it but I lo- I also love them I also love this con- in love with this concept of taking all these different tech pieces or tools and putting them into a system because you like them or because they work together right you find these mm-hmm. synergistic games i really love the word synergy cuz i also love like card games uh, oh oh yeah
2: we can we can talk about card games too <laughs> i listen
0: slay the spire is my ish and it just screams synergy to me but i agree i i definitely think there's this current era of the common license hack with powered by the apocalypse blades in the dark even dnd with the dm's guild stuff and their open gaming license just sort of this it could be a safe it could be a safety net for people like oh i know this big system works and if i change one or two things and slap a new setting on it i know i can have a working game right but i also love this playful energy of Taking desperate, like for a, a game I'm working on, it takes influences from the Hyperlight Drifter RPG, mm-hmm. it takes influences from Overlight, it takes influences from Blades in the Dark, and just some games that you think would never like touch base the same, like home table, right? Like you may not, a Blades in the Dark table may not play Overlight to some extent, commonly, yeah. but. I love that there's like almost just the secret sauce. It's it's like it's like being a chef, really, right? You see, you get used to like using russet potatoes,
2: and then you learn about like heirloom potatoes.
0: Yeah. Like,
2: Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Can I elevate my dish? <laughs> I was I was gonna say. So I I grew up not entirely, but largely in near Asheville, North Carolina, which is like a a huge sort of bluegrass and Celtic music place and I mm-hmm. and I feel like I fought that heritage for a while and then and then one day the banjo just kind of comes for you and you realize <laughs> like oh this is really good and and like if you ever sit in with like bluegrass musicians they're kind of like like a lot of that is sort of still taught I think kind of like at least sort of more traditionally where like like it nearby is a big music thing every summer called the Swannanoa Gathering and a bunch of like Celtic and and bluegrass musicians get together and and you kinda teach each other licks, like bluegrass licks. And so like you kinda know the fundamentals and then someone teaches you like this riff and you're like, oh yeah, like this is this is really cool. Like now when I'm playing I can like incorporate like this cool this cool riff into whatever I'm playing. And so that like that was kinda the the analogy for, for me. It's it's like learning your scales or your like different riffs that you can kinda remix as as is pleasing to you, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think there is this interesting sort of hill, at least for me, in in my experience, there's this interesting hill as a game designer where you don't really, or an amateur fledgling, I, I never know what to call myself, but where you are learning your fundamentals and then you get, you like learn this one fundamental and everything opens up to you. Like, you get you get over this hill of, of or the, what is it called? Slope of knowledge? Learning curve. <sighs> yes. Got it. I was like, hump, hill, something. Yeah. yeah. You, you get over this learning curve, and you finally reach a place where, like, you understand a lot of basic things, and then mm-hmm. you start just being able to splice everything together. There was this um, article I read, like, as of the recording of this, maybe two weeks ago, about dice models. Mm-hmm. Because one of the big things I struggle with right now to get anything out in the open eye is that I never feel satisfied with how a dice model is working at any point. Because I'm like, it just feel right, but I don't know another alternative. You know, yeah. I come from d d so I'm used to the target number stuff. <laughs> I've played some Blades, and I know, like, successes. And this article talked about how there was like four or five basic dice models, whether you want to include the fudge dice system or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And after that, it just breaks open what sort of those variations can be. I started like mixing dice models together once I knew what what the ingredients were. So like the current work I have is a combination of... The step dice system from Overlight and the was it roll in between system of like Ironsworn, right? Like th- those sort of two things come together in this dice model, and it it feels very good for what I'm aiming for
2: for the game. Yeah, I am I really wonder. I I've never like formally studied any any kind of game design. Like I've watched stuff, you know, watched like GDC.
0: Mm-hmm, videos mm-hmm. and
2: and things like that and have listened to people who are know this stuff much better than me but you know n- like never learned a- anything like r- in a formal setting and I, I i wonder i wonder like this is just pure speculation on on my part but like i i i kind of wonder how like the two approaches differ because i i did i did learn music formally like took classical guitar lessons which is very like you know there is like music theory which which is sometimes like a very rigid thing and you and you are sort of exposed to things in a specific order and i and i think for me sometimes like in in music you know you can get like really stuck in thinking about like a scale or like you can kind of get too tied to what the rules are supposed to be and and i i i wonder yeah i i just wonder about like that approach to like to game design like is it is it i don't want to say better or worse but just like how is it coming from like like i know um some people have have, some people in the brain trust have like studied it more more formally and i feel like i just kind of have bounced from like oh this is a cool system this is a cool idea let me write a thing that's like this and i yeah i don't know curious how like different people learn this stuff because i i i think that yeah like there are those sort of fundamental ideas that you come across that really like open up your thinking but i i like one of my goals is to kind of not do hacks not that there's anything wrong with with doing a hack but i feel like the last couple things i've written have been hacks of something and i kind of want to like give myself the challenge of like no like no straight hacks just like just try to go like way off the map somewhere and throw something onto a page and see what it's like.
0: I totally agree with you. I come from a uh, culinary background and Mm -hmm. went to school for maybe a little less than two years for some classical technique training. But for me, in, in reflecting on that it felt much slower than actually work like applying that knowledge somewhere and learning about how meeting people that take those classical techniques and really abuse their tools so mm-hmm. you know learning about different regional cuisines and then saying like okay well why can't we combine tex mex with sushi right mm-hmm. like what's stopping us from doing that and i what what i'm trying to point at is for me, my, I think it's a mind thing. I think talking about how different people come to understand different things is just how they learn, really. Mm-hmm. And not to make like a sweeping gesture, but for me, it's it was very experience-based. I'm very much a person who has to like see it happen in front of me instead of read it in a textbook because yeah. I don't feel like I have a grasp on the reality of it until I see that, okay, if I cook this for like, 10 minutes on high heat with butter, and this one at 10 minutes high heat with olive oil or coconut oil. Those are going to be two very different products with two very different flavors. Mm -hmm. Whereas, and that's just coming from the oil. We're not talking about salt, pepper, spices. We're not talking about what else is going to be on the plate. We're not talking about sauces, which could enhance or drown out or contrast against different pieces on the plate. And sort of that's at this very current stage, like literally, probably today or yesterday, is how I sort of am approaching my game design. That what's on the plate and what do I have to cook to get there, right? And yeah. I find
2: it interesting that you talk about that with music too. Yeah, and I to, to be clear, I, I do not mean to disparage anybody's background or training oh. or perspective. I I, I think mm-hmm. yeah, kind of kind of wondering about like my own limitations and like what sort of what barriers i i could try to to, to break through because yeah i think i think i'm kind of the same way in that like i i can read about a lot of stuff but i i feel like i'm gonna learn it better by just trying to do it and see what happens mm-hmm. and you might end up with a mess and that's and that's fine but yeah I, curious where other people come come in on that just yeah random open musing open mm-hmm. question
0: yeah any and all versions are successful as far as i'm concerned Apotheosis, which is not a huge game, but it is a huge game inside of 16 pages. It's amazing. Thank you. So, Gordy, for the folks, would you just give a brief introduction of of what
2: Apotheosis is about? Uh, so, this was my my entry to the folklore jam two years ago. It is about how legends change over time, and so the the general framework is that. It's a GMless, more like collaborative storytelling game than it is like a role-playing game. So you don't have characters. Um, but you will kind of kind of answer some questions about like a, a civilization or a culture and and write an initial legend for them in in a couple bullet points, and then change that legend over five generations in, in reaction to some some major historical events. And
0: I think it's wicked cool because I, before I started getting into game design, my previous attempt of application was to do novel writing stuff Mm -hmm. and did a lot of study on narrative structure and storytelling and... I just have probably a, a great personal bias towards a game like this. I love, and I'm also slowly, because of games like No Stone Unturned and Grasping Nettles, I'm slowly being very attracted to like index card based games where like lots of information is on something you can swap and move around
2: those pieces at, at your leisure. Yeah, I think I think that, that came from like back, back when I was doing a lot of screenwriting and, and kind of part of my planning process was to like write down ideas or scenes on note cards mm-hmm. and, and and it is really nice just to be able to kind of like move them around and have a nice visual of kind of what a story or a narrative looks like so I think that's where that that came from yeah I
0: love it and definitely something I've slowly been adopting even in you know as I try to think about how to construct a character sheet or, or something like that I love, I love index card models for sure you capture the effect of the transition of oral tradition really well in this game I it's one of those games where I'm reading and playing as I'm reading it like I think about what my first generation story looks like I think about the actions I would take what was sort of the so you so this was the the folklore jam you are you have some screenwriting background you have some storytelling background what was sort of the design process for a game like this was it just you translating delineating your process of screenwriting into a
2: game or was it was there additional components to that i i you know kind of wrote down a couple of ideas for like what might i want to do and i had you know had played like the quiet year recently and i think microscope recently i i don't know i i had kind of just like wrote down this list of ideas and then this one just jumped out at me cuz this is again just like a concept i'm i'm really interested interested in and and i decided like i want to make a game that is kind of about like the process of folklore like kind of from a bigger meta perspective, can I say that? Is that is yeah. that what that is? Yeah. Rather than like you know a, a lot of the like a lot of the things I wrote down were like oh here's like a cool folktale that you know I could do something with or adapt this or something like that. But I don't know. I just kind of like really like gravitated and and kind of got fixed on on this idea, and it it almost like fell into my head mostly done like I like I kind of wrote out a first draft of it and and kind of decided for what it was exactly actually but just sort of like halfway through and was like oh wait no I think I think if I used like index cards and kind of like arrange them like this like that might be cool and and then it was just kind of it just sort of came out the way the way that it did very very fortuitously like sometimes I think you just kind of get like you just get an idea and it, and it kind of clicks for you. And also it was kind of coming up on the deadline. It was like, <laughs> I, I really want to get this done. Cause I think this could be cool. And yeah, I, I, yeah. So I don't know. So this was like the first thing that I, that I wrote and it just kind of, I think was a topic that I was really interested in and, and had thought about to, you know, some, some extent already. And so it just kind of all congealed and dumped out onto the page
1: Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United UnitedHealthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves
0: You had past experience with the attempt that you were making here. So I love when, you know, it's sort of like those in the shower moments where something just clicks within you. And you're like, this is the greatest idea I've ever <laughs> had. And I, I love those moments. And I love to hear about even as a part of a process. I know this show is supposed to be slightly revealing about the process, but sometimes it's you're just... You have an initial box to work within and you're just sitting down and then it just happens. And, you know, that shouldn't be uh, I don't think that should be snickered at. And I don't think it should be one of those things like, oh, they're just talented. It wasn't just that they were talented. They had a lot of work or skill behind them that got them to that idea this previous experience that that
2: gordy has had with with screenwriting yeah i think i think like the kind of like the original kernel there was was kind of being interested in like the the idea of of like forgetting about stories or or losing parts mm-hmm. of stories you know reading like so again like i've sort of read right around different bits of mythology and if you read like like gilgamesh like there are parts that are just like we don't have them the like the (laughs) tablets broke and they're gone and they're just holes in there and so I think I think it was kind of like that idea of like what like what have we lost and how much do we not know about and how did that happen that was kind of like the original like sort of like the first thing that sparked was like oh that's like that's interesting. Like, is that a game? And then, and then, yeah, it was, it was really like just a couple of weeks, kind of like really fixated on it. I, I, it was kind of like put out in in a hurry, and I would like to return to it at some point and like expand it and do something with it because it, it's still in like its game jam form. That might that might be a future Kickstarter. I love it. I would love to see the re- the return of Apotheosis
0: Second Edition, and to sort of touch on that forgetting or replacing of components you know I think about how because in the book you mentioned that doesn't have to be like centuries or millennia of generations it can be in the ecosystem of today where internet can change a story in minutes right just depending on the circumstance and Mm -hmm. when you were talking about Gilgamesh I think about the pairing of Gilgamesh and Enkidu and how they're sort of warped in different like I think about the Final Fantasy series how Gilgamesh has a dog pet that's Enkidu but Enkidu is a person in the Gilgamesh epics right never never a dog so like Mm -hmm. where did that come from right someone just said I want to see that faithful companion in animal form rather than in person
2: form. Yeah, I think I think this was also coming off of like uh, again, kind of reading Norse mythology. There's like there there's sort of two two really big works called the the Eddas. There's the the poetic Edda, which is the older one, and then the prose Edda, which is the newer one. And, and the first one is is sort of a bunch of a bunch of poems that kind of highlight different moments of like the Norse saga. And then Snorri Sturluson came along in like the 12th century, 13th century, something like that, and and kind of rewrote them sort of a, as he understood. It. This was after like the Christianization of of Iceland, and so there, there are things that are a lot different. Like he kind of thinks that uh, that the the gods are. Are Trojans, and that they sort of come from like the center of the Earth, and and so he was like trying to sort of reinterpret this like based on like his own beliefs and his own understandings, and so I think that that was also kind of probably like something that that I drew on a a lot was just like yeah, just how like sort of the the cultural drift of a of a place um, or maybe even just like a handful of people can kind of drastically change what what we end up with and sort of our our understanding of a place or a time or a culture. But yeah, I think that's, it's basically the one idea that I have for games is like thing that changes over time. But I feel like I keep like chasing that thought in, in different angles.
0: I find I'm also really attracted to this sort of legacy mechanism for games i know adira slatterly and her spouse fen have a game out called the machine Mm -hmm. where for those who may not know listening to this is their first episode the machine is basically this concept of you have a dream or something is pulling you to creating this machine and it's a solo journaling game and when you're done at some point i won't spoil the end but when you're done with the game you are to give your journal to another person along with the game and they continue off of your rhetoric. So you read the previous entries and then you start to become consumed by the need for creation of the machine. Mm -hmm. And so I've always loved this idea of a permanence, not a permanence, because that may mean unchanging, but sort of a flexible permanence, I guess, for lack of a more refined term of characters, places, settings, stories, legends. I thought about at one point to like, I always think about how in D&D there's everyone else's legendary weapons, but never your own legendary weapon. Like you never craft your own legendary weapon. Mm -hmm. And I would love to see like, like an evolution system of, of that in some sort of fantasy game i as as we talk about this i think about in this game that i'm working on there the concept is that the world has been reborn there's this new resource called aether it's based on the elements Mm -hmm. and now i think about that if you want to keep playing the same character you could i think about this near automata moment where you could sacrifice all the aether skill you've built up in your character, give it away to society, and then start like do a new game plus basically that way. I think
2: that would yeah. be a cool iteration of that. I think I think that's cool. I think there's like some some kind of roguelike elements, maybe, to, to some of this. Because I keep thinking about mm-hmm. like you know, some some roguelike games, you know, when when you die you can sort of pass on an item or something to like your next playthrough. I'm kind of dry on examples off the top of my head, but, but that's like King's Way does it. If anybody played King's Way fun, it's a fun little game, but yes, I think that's kind of like sort of a similar idea maybe of like, Mm -hmm. yeah, like, you know, one, one person, one character kind of has this experience you know, in, in roguelikes explores like a world that is theoretically like different from many of the other iterations you're going to see and then leave something behind for the next, the next version, the next iteration. And like, there, I don't know, there's something really fascinating about like, like, I don't know what, like what you can tell about what passes from one, from one to like to the next, like what is the significance Of something that is important enough to preserve over time between generations between people and and is it more important than the things that that didn't make it or was that circumstance did somebody make a choice between this is important and this is not or Mm -hmm. like what yeah like what what happened don't know where i'm going with this but (laughs) yeah it's something that i that i keep thinking about like i don't know i can't like shake that thought like whenever i sit down to like think about designing a new game like that idea seems to always be somewhere in the back of my head
0: i love it i think it's a good idea to have in the back of your head i'm and it's helped certainly help me work out something from my game so thank you Cory. Okay. Okay. And based on what I roll here, that'll be your prompt for a tip to give to the listeners. You can use any range of experience for this. It doesn't have to relate to the things we talked about today. It can come from any of your backgrounds, whether that be your political field of things or game design things, because I think all of those experiences from different places are valid to help the growth of any creator out there. Mm-hmm. Oh. All right. So, Gordy, with whatever level of experience that you have at your fingertips, would you give some sort of tip under the construct of marketing slash publishing?
2: Yeah, well, I have, I, I have a thought. So I used to do some, some screenwriting and, and some filmmaking in, in another life, and I think it was really helpful to kind of learn a lot about... The, the marketing and, and sort of the, the process of, of publishing and kind of the realities of like, what does it take to go from, you know, an, an idea to something physical. And, and you know, in something like film, I think the, the hurdles are a lot higher than in, in independent tabletop RPGs, because it, <laughs> it is a, a discipline that requires a bunch of people to go somewhere at the same time and do things right over and over and over again on like a really tight time schedule. But I, I think, you know, in, in college took some screenwriting classes and, and it was very much like, you know, let's flex our creativity. Let's tell a cool story. And and I, I took some workshops after graduating and and one of the, the big things that I kind of took away was like writing Something I, I guess scope, like scope of of the project is kind of what it what it comes down to and kind of understanding like sort of like what are the the realistic or logistical limitations to what you're trying to do and then how like how can you use that to kind of give yourself some some creative limitations because i think i i i really like having some creative limitations because it's it is almost it's it's like a problem solving exercise like it's almost a puzzle of like okay like if i have to do x and i can't do y or z then like within this framework like what is a cool thing that that i can do and and i think like game jam is sort of a maybe a good place to do something like that where you've got like a theme that you that you have to follow and I think what I what I took from that was like I I think you know a, a lot of people think like oh well you know the marketing and and that sort of end of it can be a real damper on creativity because you have to change you know your ideas or you have to make it fit you know something that a demographic will be interested in, and I feel like mm-hmm. one of the things that I've kind of enjoyed doing is actually having somebody say like, "Well, like, it it can't be, it can't be this, like, it can't be X, it can't be longer than whatever, it has to involve something like this," and and it it kind of gives me like a creative place to start from, like just having like a couple of restrictions, and so I think I don't know, I I think there's some maybe some weird creative opportunities in there that you can take advantage of without without having to feel like you are being stifled by sort of the need to have to like market your, your thing. Does that make any sense at all?
0: Yes, 100%. Great. There's this really interesting one to touch on sort of a combination of the scope of projects and limitations and creativity. I, I love the philosophy of restricted restrictedness breeds creativity, right? Mm-hmm. If your concept is that you have to create a game that uses bears like animals are the focus right if animals are the whole focus that's gonna be a wildly different track of thought if someone were to say make a game about nature Mm -hmm. which might be which at first may seem like two very similar venn diagrams but really when the focus of the project or or creation is one of those two things you may not actually be thinking about nature you might be thinking about something some other connections completely ambivalent to that right Mm -hmm. Ambivalent. oblivious oblivious ambivalent ambivalent someone will
2: (laughs) will yell at (laughs) me words mean anything you want
0: and so i i totally am behind that philosophy i shoot now i lost what i the second one i was gonna say Oh, it was about the sort of demographic related thing, right? Mm-hmm. I, I think what I also want to touch on is that you, there are conversations all over Twitter, all the time, discourse wise, about how certain companies won't take on a project because it is not the safe bet for their demographic. Mm -hmm. And that can be daunting to some new creators where they want to go the more traditional route of getting someone else to handle their publishing or marketing for them Mm -hmm. with approval. And what I wanted to add to that whole conversation was that there is, there is a game for everyone out there. I truly believe that Uh, there is a creation out there for everybody. And, I think that if you're thinking about the traditional publishing routes, you and this is coming from whatever research I did with like novel writing and stuff like yeah. that when it comes to self-publishing, there is no fear that you have to have. Now you may not, you know, you may not be able to get into a traditional publishing company that allows for you to garner the eyes of a million Mm -hmm. But really, if you have, you know, the concept is the 100 true fans, right? 100 people who are willing to spend 100 bucks on your product every month. Sure. That's, I mean, that's also the dream, right? You don't need millions of eyes. You just need people who are going to, who like what you do and come back to what you're doing. And so I think there's this honesty that can can come from that as a creator and that Mm -hmm. you don't have to be Use the theme of the project, not the end result of the project as a guide for your creation. I mean, I guess both kind of influence each other. But I guess my my takeaway is that you should focus more on what you're passionate toward versus what will garner you the largest sum of dollars, I suppose. Sure.
2: Yeah, I think, yeah, I love- I think all like my favorite things like my favorite pieces of media are are things that I like deliver an experience that I think I can't get anywhere else like there are some writers who write things and I, I just feel like nobody else can quite do what what they do there might be imitators there might be people who are inspired by it, but like like there's just something about like what they do and the way that they have like sort of followed their interest that delivers something that is just... Like they they really shine through all of it. Mm-hmm, mm. That immediately
0: makes me think of like Will and Adam, the Brain Trust podcast hosts. The, I mean, their mm-hmm. game generation and the ideas they innovate on are. I mean, to me, you know, because all experience is relevant. But to me, it's it's mind blowing. It's like I don't, I look up to it, but I never feel like I'm in a place where like I could emulate that. Yeah. At, at my current
2: stage of life. Yeah, they do great stuff every every week. Mm-hmm.
0: Every every, <laughs> week. every week every day. Whoo! Wow, big big claps and applause for for the both of them, and for all of us who are in different places in our journeys. Gordy, I have had a beautiful time hanging out with you today.
2: Thank you. It's been Where?
0: Really fun. Thank you. Where can people get a hold of you, find your games, learn more about you, get involved? All the links that Gordy provides will be in the show notes for your access.
2: You can find me on Twitter at Gordy Murphy. That's G-O-R-D-I-E. You can find my games at gmurphy.itch.io. Everything is on there. I don't have a website because I don't want to maintain one, if I'm being honest. So you can you can find any of my stuff there, there are probably community copies of everything. You are welcome to pick any of those up or, or get in touch. I have a, a zine quest project upcoming as, as do many of us. It is, it is called, is this the right time to do this? yes uh, yes 100 okay. great yeah it is it is called reliquary and it is it takes place in in a megastructure some tens of millions of years in the future a, a megastructure called the coil and you will be playing wanderers who are finding relics from past civilizations of humanity and kind of exploring a, a big weird architecture thing
0: I love it. I love ancient, ancient structure, deep dives. Give me Dungeon of the Mad Mage any day. Great, amazing. All that stuff, especially the Kickstarter link, will be in here. Once again, Gordy, thank you for being on the show. It it was a great time.
2: Thank you. I appreciate it.
0: Uh, For all those listening out there, I hope that you learned a lot, because I certainly did, and we will catch you next time. Say bye to the people, Gordy.
2: Buddy, thanks for listening.
0: Bye. All right, that's a wrap. Wow. Political advocate, podcast host, musician, screenwriter, game designer. What can't he do? Gordy, you have so much to offer. Thank you for chatting with me today. All the games we talked about today, along with all the links to get in touch with Gordy, as well as links to his Kickstarter for Reliquary, will be down below in the show notes for your access. If you like the show and found it helpful, please send a tip my way over on Venmo at DYDPodcast. Or, if you are unable to donate, please consider sharing this with the person you thought of while listening to this episode and leave a review. Both of these methods greatly impact the success of this show and lets me know that what I'm doing is beneficial to designers out there. If you finally got your game off the ground and out in the world, you can tag me at JeremyGage5 over on Twitter with the hashtag I did it. That's I-D-Y-D-I-T. Thanks for listening, and I will catch you next time.